and welcome to From the EBPL Archives, Encore Presentations from the East Brunswick Public Library. I am your host, Melissa Hosick. This event was presented as part of our Just for the Health of It initiative. Just for the Health of It is a proprietary health literacy program developed by the East Brunswick Public Library to promote health literacy in Middlesex County. To learn more, visit justforthehealthofit.org. Now, enjoy the program. I'd like to welcome you all to this much-awaited program, Let's Talk About Vaccines, brought to you by a partnership between the East Brunswick Public Libraries, Just for the Health of It, Health Literacy Program, and the Rutgers Institute for Health, Healthcare Policy, and Aging Research. I'm Karen Parry, Manager of Information Services and the Library's Just for the Health of It Health Literacy Program. Today's program has been in the planning phases for several months, and we are so honored that Dr. Xin Shidong and his team have chosen the East Brunswick Public Library to host the event. The program will be taped and shared with other libraries throughout the state and with Healthier Middlesex, a consortium between Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital and St. Peter's University Hospital. Before I turn it over to Kathy Churn, Consumer Health Librarian, who is your host today, I want to give a special mention of gratitude to these individuals who put in hours of work to make today's program happen. Stephanie Bergren, Natalie Tuzet, Jenny Noonan, Dan Dykwald, and Jennifer Rojas, all of Rutgers, and of course, our own Kathy Churn, Consumer Health Librarian, who has co coordinated all the details to make today's event possible. This program supports the library's Just for the Health of It mission to empower everyone with the knowledge to make informed and enlightened decisions about their health through better health literacy. So now I'm going to turn it over to Kathy and please enjoy the program. Right. Thank you, Karen. Um, so everyone, welcome and thank you for joining us this afternoon for today's Lunch and Learn. Let's talk about vaccines. So my name is Kathy Chern and I'm a consumer health librarian at East Brunswick Public Library. Our speaker today, Dr. Xin-Chi Dong, is the director of the IFH, the Institute for Health, Healthcare Policy, and Aging Research at Rutgers University. Dr. Dong is a physician and a geriatric specialist and has spent his career engaging minority communities in research and health education. Since the start of the pandemic, Dr. Dong and the IFH have been working with partner organizations across New Jersey to ensure communities have reliable and up-to-date information about the virus and vaccines. Please be aware that this talk is being recorded and please keep your microphones muted and your webcams off. When ready, the recording will be available at ebpl.org YouTube. If you have any questions, please type them into the chat box. The doctor will answer questions at the end of the talk. The doctor will not be able to offer medical advice to attendees during this program. And without further ado, I'll turn things over to Dr. Dong. Thank you very much. Uh, next slide, please. Um, before I start, I just want to really thank the East Brunswick Public Library for this partnership. You know, uh, library has very special um, sentiments throughout my earlier part of formative life. And where I was growing up, we had a very small village and in our school where a lot of different villages goes to, um, we didn't really have a library. It was more of a room and a few shelves. And, and I remember it was really a a comforting place, really a safe place. And 
And despite all the studies that I was supposed to do was the martial arts books and others that got me through earlier years. And, and even though now as a physician, and I learned this over the last couple of years that the most trusted professions are actually librarians or not doctors and nurses. And so I want to thank you for this partnership and in working with Rutgers and IFH in doing um, this important topic. I won't have all the answers to um, questions you may be seeking, but we'll do our best trying to at least shed some light into what's going on, the latest news, as well as some of the controversies that surrounds um, information and um, um, and whatever we don't um, have answers, we'll try to find them for you as well and get them back to you. Next slide. So as, as a geriatric physician, um, many of my patients, um, and I think in many ways public, wants to have a pill that works when it's supposed to work and stop working when it's supposed to stop working with minimal side effects. Uh, those things rarely ever exist, um, whether you're taking a cluster medication that can be highly toxic um, at the wrong doses to um, a drop of water in your trachea that can cause catastrophic damages. So it's really a balance. And often what we are looking for in terms of treat on, op treatment options, too little of something um, may not be very useful, too much of something as much as we think may be useful may or may not be the case as well. And this is why researching part is so important. Next slide. So what is a vaccine? How does it work? Um, if vaccines really, it's a way of protection are, are against infectious disease. Um, that could be a virus, could be a bacteria, could be a fungi, uh, could be autoimmune disease. Um, that sometimes that we need a way of body fighting the system. Obviously there's no, very, no vaccine for autoimmune disease, but in this case, it's really about how to use a product that boosts our immune system to be able to uh, deal with harmful viruses and bacteria. Next slide. This is a, so it's a bit of an important slide in the sense of understanding how does the immune system work. Um, there's a lot of misconception out there thinking about what, what is immunity um, and, and when does it actually begin to work after you receive the vaccine. So the first blip when you see the needle on the left side is when you get the vaccine. And then we see this primary response. And sometimes what that means is you may feel a little feverish, you may have some muscle aches, you may have some headaches. And that's really your way of your immune system working um, and really triggering a response in a way. Not everyone needs to have that, but most people do. But the protection of the uh, vaccine really comes when you do get exposed to the virus or the bacteria in the later point, which is sort of the second part of the graph, the higher peak where the antibodies are really producing much massive quantities in a way that when you do get exposed to infection, those secondary responses antibodies can get to a place where it prevents um, severe infections and may even prevent infections in general. Next slide. Why do we need a COVID vaccine? Needless to say, you've heard a lot about this and I won't go into in too much detail other than that, you know, accepting the morbidity mortality associated with, with the COVID is just simply are not acceptable. And we need a better ways to be able to conduct prevention. Think about primary, secondary, per, tertiary prevention. And the vaccines is such that one good way to really protect the public. Um, and, um, and the use of vaccine 
are not much different in terms of thinking about how does drug makers create new drugs. You know, some, some of the technologies have shared platforms, but angle is the same, is to prevent disease either after people already have the disease to prevent complications or taking medications to prevent disease to occur in the first place. Vaccine is really focused on primary prevention in the sense that you get the vaccines to prevent the, the infection from occurring. Next slide. This is a slide that's minimally outdated, and I'll explain why in a second, but I think it illustrates a important way to understand what different kind of vaccines out there. I won't go through all of them, but I think there's a few of them that's probably worthwhile talking about. DNA, RNA vaccine, I've heard a lot about. You know, this is the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, and that really have shown to be highly effective. What's nice about this is that it's very easy to make because we have the genetic sequence of the codes of the virus. And in a way that's much easier to be able to target. Um, the downside is previously to Moderna and Pfizer, there really was not anything that had been FDA approved. And one of the reasons for that is because DNA, RNA, the vaccines are very fragile. Um, everything you know, in life on earth degrades, degrades over time. And DNA, RNA are, are very similar to that. And one of the advances of the last 10 years has been the case is really, how do we use nanotechnology in a way to be able to protect the stability of those vaccine particles in a way that can be effective. Um, the second column, the live attenuated, that is really a, a, a unique way of making a vaccine that's using a weakened version of actual virus. So a good example is the measles, mumps, rubella, or chickenpox, for example. So essentially package that weakened virus in a way that delivered and trigger very lasting immune response. And that sometimes is lifelong. And those are the advantages. The downside is that obviously for patients who may have immunocompromised systems, people with you know, cancer, people with HIV, people with certain autoimmune disease, those are things we need to be a little careful with. The third column implies the inactivated uh, virus uh, vaccine in this case. That means it's not a live virus, but they've been weakened either by chemical or heat in this case. The, the plus side is a little easier to make and, um, and they're pretty safe. The downside is that it does not trigger as robust of immune response as a live attenuated virus. So, um, subunits, I won't go into that for now, but the viral vector really what Johnson & Johnson AstraZeneca vaccine are based on are very unique in that way. In the sense that we typically package a harmless virus or a component of a virus into something else to make it work. Um, so in this case is adenovirus. So imagine a scenario where you're trying to get a passenger from place A to place B and you already have a vehicle. So you don't have to walk, you don't have to ride a bike and you can able to pack that piece of the S protein, sort of the crown, if you will, of the coronavirus to be able to package that into a, another harmless virus, in this case, a, a common cold virus, except that common cold virus will not give you a cold because that's being inactivated and it's being harmless. And using that as a viral vector to trick our immune system pr to produce something that can shown to be antibodies against the spikes of the COVID vaccine. And when it has worked in the past, Ebola virus uh, vaccine has been incredibly effective. There's other uh, respiratory syncytial virus and also been very effective. 
AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson are the common candidate that's being that you've heard a lot about as well. Next slide. So you know, I, I get a lot of questions on what what makes Pfizer and Moderna in a way that's um, that we hadn't been able to do before. This sort of nanoparticle comes in. Well, so think of a nanoparticle. It's a way that codes a a piece of of, of mRNA in a way that keeps it much more stable. And this is a way that um, both Moderna and Pfizer have been used to, to be able to get our immune system with the right genetic codes to be able to produce antibodies to specific segments. And what's nice about this is what's different about between Pfizer and Moderna is one, the technology for the most part of the same. There are slight differences amongst them. And also amount of, of the mRNA packaged into each of the vaccine are slightly different between two of those as well. Does that mean that they will have different immune responses? Um, at least looking at phase three trials so far, that's not been the case. Um, we can go into detail in the next slide. There are different strains. We knew there were different strains um, very earlier on in the pandemic, um, even in last January, February, March, that we knew that there were different strains in different parts of the world at that time. Mutation is very common. Mutations often can be a bad thing or a good thing. You know, viruses, bacteria, they mutate. Sometimes they mutate towards their own detriments, but often they mutate towards their advantage. Just like how human um, and our genetic codes have changed over the course of thousands and, and millions of years over time. And that really, is the case for many different um, other organisms as well. And um, um, so far, the data has shown that the, the test that we have out there, especially the DNA test, the PCR test, that's able to still able to detect the, the strain that you hear about the UK strain. Um, South Africa strain, a bit less so. We really need to be able to do more genetic sequencing to be able to understand how do they differ? And are the current nuclear acid technology able to, um, to detect the screening for the new strains of COVID in the country? Next slide. You know, this is slide shows which different vaccines are commonly used. Um, Pfizer, as you can tell, is probably some of the most commonly used, AstraZeneca, Moderna, um, and uh, that you can, you don't, I don't have to read them out. And that really depends on which part of the world that you live in. Um, many part of the world that you may not have access to Pfizer or Moderna. So I think, you know, um, AstraZeneca, um, and when you look at China and Russia, for example, um, the access is very different. So it's not as if people necessarily always have a choice to say, you know, I have six vaccines available to me and I, which one do I want to choose? Um, so far, that has not been the case. Would that come as at some point down the line? Perhaps, but so far that has not been the case. Next slide. Next slide. Vaccines being developed much faster, but I personally do not believe that the quality has been sacrificed to many of the misconceptions that is out there. We typically go through, you know, uh, animal study. We go through first um, phase one, phase two, phase three human trial. What that means is that, you know, the phase one is the, is the early studying trial, essentially making sure that, that the, either the drug or the vaccine or the medication are not toxic to humans, that they're able to deal with these, these uh, common side effects and what they are. 
And phase two, essentially, just to think about as a pilot study that really look at, you know, are they effective and how much are effective they may be the case. So gathering the preliminary data for the phase three, which is the large trial, typically in terms of, you know, tens of thousands of people, and then FDA approves it. And phase four often applies to that after the vaccine is being approved, then how do we measure quality and then titration of the vaccine over time. During this pandemic and, um, you know, the mRNA vaccine really have helped with the technology um, over the last 10 years that I talked about with the nanoparticle, um, but also the entire world is paying attention to this in terms of recruitment. Typically phase three recruitment takes years to, to be able to do so, in part because of limited resources and constraints, um, and perhaps sometimes a lack of demand. When you look at Ebola virus, vaccine, for example, you know, other than certain part of Africa, the demand for the vaccine was fairly low and remained low in this case. And, um, but it, the COVID is very different in the sense that it's really a global effort. So the recruitment has been expeditious and has been incredibly large and to be able to recruit the participants into the trials. Um, but equally important, the, the Institution Review Board, the Data Safety Monitoring Board, the FDA, CDC process, that has all been in place. Those steps have not been skipped um, to be able to get us the data into peer review form so that the independent scientists and regular agencies can really judge the data for ourselves and to be able to understand its true side effect and efficacy. Next slide. Next. So there's different ways of monitoring the side effects. And for those of you who may not have received this first and perhaps the second dose of the vaccine as well, that you can, you get a card and you get a registration. And often you may have to answer questions after shortly after vaccine to see, you know, how you feel and how you do. Um, different vaccines um, have different enrollments, but some of the common points that we care a lot about, and I think all of you as well, is to say, you know, does it really prevent infection? Does it really prevent severe infection? Do people die from, not only from the vaccine, but do people die from COVID after they receive the vaccine? So those are important data points to be able to gather. And so there's many different social media platforms and that really keep track of those. CDC certainly does, FDA as well, as many different um, um, governmental agencies such as NIH, as well as university settings as well. So keeping track of those are really important to make sure that we know it's not only safe for now, but safe over time as well. Next slide. Safety and efficacy. Um, safety just means that, you know, do we get side effects, you know, and do we get adverse events that disproportionate to those who, uh, who didn't receive the vaccine? And this is where an efficacy obviously means that, you know, does it, is it helpful? Is it a is it effective in this case? And one of the reasons why the phase three uh, double-blind placebo-controlled randomized control trial is so important is that the power of placebo, um, you know, placebo medic really can do a number in terms of us believing something will be useful and actually experiencing a benefit, even though it's just a sugar pill or a saline injection, or known as nocebo effect, that if you think that the something will not be effective, that's even if you're giving a sugar pure cell injection, that you will likely not experience any benefits. So the power of the mind is what I'm trying to say, it's really important to be able to conduct those kind of trials to understand the safety and efficacy. Next slide. 
Pfizer, Moderna, you can, um, by the way, the slides you'll have them in detail so that I don't want to read through all of them. You know, some of the localized side effects are fairly common between Pfizer and Moderna. Um, I think we have another slide. Go to the next slide. Yeah, this is a, a, a better slide to look at. You know, what are some of the side effects after the first and second dose? You know, for the Pfizer, localized pain is pretty common for both um, the first and second dose. Um, fever, a little less likely in the, in the first dose. Um, and, um, and after the second dose, the fatigue and the pain headache seems to be slightly worse than the first dose. For Moderna, um, the, the first dose and the second dose, the, the, in terms of pain, erythema or redness, localized swelling, fever tend to be quite a bit higher in Moderna, the second dose. Um, headaches, fatigue, myalgia, and the nausea and chills as well. So typically with our patients, if you do okay in the first dose, you know, if you were to get your second dose, which you're trying to take it easy, especially the day after you receive the second dose, just in case that you may have some increasing side effects. And the purpose of the second dose is really used as a lever to boost your immune system and antibody response in a way that perhaps is longer lasting over time. Next slide. Those are some of the data that's been in the published literature looking at Pfizer. So if I just orient you on the, on the X axis is the days after the dose, you see up to about three months. On the Y axis is sort of the cumulative cases of COVID cases over time. And when you look at the red line, red line are people who actually received the vaccine for the Pfizer vaccine. You can see that it stayed pretty low in terms of number of cases for people who did not receive the vaccine, that the cases of the COVID continue to increase over time. That's the blue small circles over time. And when you look at symptomatic cases versus severe COVID cases, you can see the vaccine versus placebo. And that's how they derived the 95% efficacy from. Um, next slide. I think it looks at Moderna. And again, very similarly, um, that if you receive the vaccine, the cases are very low. Um, and if you did not receive the Moderna vaccine in the blinded study, that um, people continue to have higher cases of, of COVID. And when you look at symptomatic um, COVID infections, um, if you got a vaccine, only 11 people got it. And if you did not, you get about 185 people. Severe COVID for the um, Moderna, nobody from the vaccine got severe COVID for the placebo 30 cases. Again, the, based on this is how the, the efficacy of 94% was derived from. Next slide. What well, we don't know um, really surrounding, not just the sh necessarily short term, but the longer term um, side effects and efficacies. You know, you hear a bit on the news now saying that are the antibodies lasting longer than three to six months? Well, we really don't have great data at this point. People tell us um, that's the case. Are the side effects um, more than the short term? In many times, um, whether it's drugs or other vaccines, and Sometimes side effects takes time and we need longer term follow-up people to share, to be able to tell them. And safety efficacy in certain groups, you know, so far does not suggest to be the case, but those study, when you look at endpoint, the numbers are still fairly small in terms of actual cases of people with COVID, even though we're talk, talking about tens of thousands of people enrolled in the trial, but it's not the number of people enrolled in the trial is the only factor that matters, but looking endpoint, in other words, saying the number of people who actually got COVID 
um, or experiencing severe side effects, those are the cases that we really need the longer term data to be able to follow. Next slide. If you have allergies and fever, if you have a bleeding disorder, or if you're pregnant, plan to become pregnant, you know, um, talk to your doctor, whether it's both Pfizer or Moderna, or if the J&J were to be um, approved by FDA and CDC, um, always ask your doctor. Some of those, some of the, I get a lot of questions, you know, such as, you know, if I have rheumatoid arthritis, can I get COVID? I'm on, you know, thyroid medication, can I get a COVID vaccine? Or to say I have high blood pressure, my blood pressure over 150, can I get a vaccine? Those are not unreasonable questions. I think in many cases are, our patients, our community are looking for reassurance from physicians to be able to say, it's okay to get, get it. And I think that reassurance, that trust in physician and healthcare system really important um, to be able to support our community and residents. Next slide. What's unique about Johnson Johnson is the one dose um, and the 66% effectiveness is really, it's a global data. And when you look at some of the more localized data number seems to be a bit higher. And, um, and it's currently under FDA right now review. And one of the reasons why it takes longer for FDA in the US to review as compared to, for example, UK, for example, is that in the FDA in the United States, um, the company needs to not only submit the raw data, but the FDA conduct their own analysis as opposed to simply a report that highlight the key findings. So that's really important. I think it's a very rigorous process that needs to take place. Next slide. Where we are right now, um, it, it's, you know, we hear about 1A versus 1C, talking about healthcare workers um, and the long-term care residents and, and the communities, the essential workers, high-risk groups. Um, but even with that, I know it's been a lot of different difficulties across the state of New Jersey um, to be able to get people vaccinated, even people perhaps in the higher risk groups. And that's really frustrating for many. Um, I have patients who are eligible and should be getting vaccines and they can't get vaccines. And we have um, many community residents who have to travel hours to be able to go get vaccine. The websites are confusing. The registration system is incredibly confusing. People register through multiple sites which only backs up the system. Because what happens is that if someone were to be eligible in multiple places and they can only go to one place, that creates a backlog. I think from a statewide perspective, there really needs to be a good system to be able to handle not only uh, a shortening vaccines to state level in our healthcare system, but um, sometimes more importantly, distributing of those vaccines to those needed. Next slide. If you did get a vaccine, you will know you'll get a card. Um, the card looks like that. And the people who who administer the vaccine will put a lot number, the vaccine number and the date and the signature on there. Will that be useful at some point? It's unknown in terms of, will that make a difference in terms of people's ability to travel, to interact with other family members? I think still a lot of questions to be unknown. Next slide. There's some information here. I won't go through them um, in detail, but I think the general recommendations I've been giving to patients is that you know, register more than one place, register in the state level, but in different counties, if you have specific departments where you can register, still do try to get your name on the list. And, um, and think about also that um, working with community organization libraries and who maybe provide resources to say that, 
you know, some mega sites, there are many different modalities. I think the next slide shows a better picture. Um, no, go back to the last slide. Um, that there are different pod systems. There are mega sites uh, across the state of New Jersey that can administer vaccine more than just regular work hours. Um, some of them open the weekend that you can be able to register to. Um, because it's not easy just because a site becomes open then you can get a people can get appointment doesn't necessarily mean you can get there for some people it's because transportation problem for some people because they cannot take it the day off from um, their work to be able to do so and some people are, are worried about side effects to say well I get a vaccine I got to take three days off work and I can't afford doing that because my my job security may be at a risk to do so. So a lot of different barriers we have to acknowledge at a broader level. Next slide. So, so far as of, as of um, last week, um, in the state of New Jersey, 1.2 million doses being administered. Um, obviously the first doses are quite a bit higher than the second dose. When you look at the numbers, um, women have um, received more vaccines. And when you look at the different racial ethnic groups, um, and age groups, I won't go through in those in detail, but the Pfizer and Moderna are fairly equal. Um, but the, what's one impression on this slide is that it's not just the looking at those vaccination by the numbers, but I think this is where issues of health equity really need to come in because we know when we look at the disease burdens of specific age groups and underrepresented minorities um, are disproportionately higher. And when you look at this uh, picture, it's really a forces to think about how do we allocate um, vaccines and to those who are in the most need, those who are perhaps at a higher risk, not only to themselves and perhaps that may be contagious to others as well, should they be able to, uh, should they get the COVID virus. Next slide. Um, how when do we get back to normal? Um, it will take time. Um, I think you probably have heard different experts talking about different timelines. There are those who are very optimistic who think, you know, by Christmas we will be somewhat to normal. Those who are much more trepidatious to say it's going to take until next year before that's the case. It depends on many different factors. Um, herd immunity implies that there's enough people in your community, in the country, in the world that receive the vaccine that really vaccine stop spreading to the same degree. And that really requires about 70% plus people to be able to get vaccinated. Um, and that's really, really hard. And we're nowhere close to that number right now. Um, to become immune, that, you know, getting infection um, and then creating, developing antibodies one way, other ways vaccination. And there's so much we don't know about, even though if you were to be, to had infection, how long the immunity lasts. You know, you hear cases, people get COVID and then get COVID again, you know, and they, why they may be outliers, but does create a question to say, you know, how long is our, how well is our immune system to, to combat this? Is this something that's gonna be every year that we need a vaccine or is this something every two or three years? In part depends on how good is the vaccine also in part depends on how quickly the virus mutates over time and are the mutations are as deleterious or harmful, even more harmful than the first wave of the virus. Next slide. 
But regardless, if you get a vaccine and I think, you know, continue to wear masks correctly and maintain healthy habits, not only in terms of avoiding sick people, but washing hands and, but also keep your physical distancing um, as much as you can. And um, because of the carrier issues that many people, especially adolescents, that they can be carriers without necessarily being um, too sick from the COVID. Uh, next slide. Thank you for joining us for this week's Encore presentation. To join us for live programs or to learn more about the East Brunswick Public Library, visit our website at ebpl.org.